welcome to the Random Redux Review Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Random Redux Review Podcast. If you enjoyed uh, the last episode, episode three, with Susan Rogers, you'll like this one. This is kind of sort of an addendum. I talked to Susan again. We, we listened to some songs. Abort mission. Abort, abort, abort mission. What you're hearing right now is a bit of a failed ex- experiment. I tried. Uh, originally, I wanted to have an episode where I talked to Susan Rogers in the addendum of sorts, uh, where we actually listen to some particular songs and comment on them, much how she does in her book, This Is What It Sounds Like. But Spotify's new music and talk program isn't quite what I thought it was. I thought it posted bits and pieces of songs on all streaming platforms, not just Spotify. If you have a paid account um, you, and you're listening to this on Spotify, you'd be able to hear the, the original episode with music incorporated and all that. If you don't have a paid account, you can go to Spotify, listen for free, and only hear 30 seconds of the song. Everybody else, you're hearing this version, which does not have any of the songs referenced in it, but I have included in the show notes links on YouTube to where you can find the songs, so you can listen to them at your leisure if you so choose. Songs aren't exactly unfamiliar to a lot of people, so you may be familiar with them anyway. One other sort of little mini addendum. In the context of this episode, I'm talking to Susan, and we listen to the version of It Was a Very Good Year by Frank Sinatra that is from Live at the Meadowlands. And in the book, she's actually discussing Live at the Sands, which is actually a record that my stepfather used to play for me as a kid. In the episode, we actually listened to It Was a Very Good Year by Frank Sinatra, the version that appears on Live at the Meadowlands that came out several decades apart. So, but, you know, both good, just slightly different. So if there's any confusion about what we're talking about and wondering if that, that explains that, basically I just have too much going on in my life right now and it created some confusion, plus, you know, the whole brain cancer thing. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Bye. Well, I wanted to make it clear in this book that it isn't another music book about the author's taste in music. I didn't want to be telling the reader, here's what good music is. And there was no better way of shaking up the concept of what good music is than by introducing the shags. So the shags are well known by music industry professionals. Um, They serve as an example for us of authenticity in music performance. So if you're talking about art, great works of art, you're going to think of Picasso and Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and Rembrandt. But let's not forget that there's also a little child's drawing of mom and dad. So what are you seeing when you look at a toddler's drawing of mom and dad? There's no technique there at all. They don't yet know how to draw. What you're seeing is pure, undistilled intentionality. You're seeing that they're trying to communicate with you, the person who's going to look at their drawing, and what you're going to what you're going to get from them is them saying, "These are the people that matter to me. These are the people that rule my world." And here's a drawing of these people. So yeah, there's no technique there, but intentionality is pure, pure, pure. In fact, that's all that's there. So in the case of the Shags from the 1960s, these three young women were in this rural area. They didn't get good radio reception. They didn't get a chance to listen to what good music was. Their father pulled them out of school, forbade them from dating and seeing boys and just locked them up basically in their rooms, gave them musical instruments and said, learn to play and write some songs while you're at it. So (laughs) what we hear in their performance is like a toddler's drawing. It's that rock and roll attitude of here's me on an instrument and I've got something to say to you. Now, why record makers would enjoy hearing that is that we occasionally need reminders of that intentionality. When a person learns to play or write or sing, they can express themselves without actually feeling it. They can express anger or sadness or joy or peacefulness or whatever. They don't have to actually be feeling it. 
we listen to the shags to remind us of what that pure sincerity sounds like and to remember to have it even in the expressions of people who can really play and sing. As you noted when we talked earlier, me personally, I tend to go more for sort of punk guttural sort of sounds and things like that. And I think that's certainly the case with a lot of punk. I mean, punk music in general is not known for its high level of technical ability. While there are some artists who have very high levels of technical ability, a lot of it is just sort of that raw, straight emotion. And that's really what carries it. Carries it. Like, I think one of the greatest records of all time is the album put out by Rights of Spring, which... I don't know if you're familiar with, they were just a DC DC post sort of hardcore band, but I mean, objectively, the music on it, I think, and a lot of people disagree Mm. with me, I think it's terrible. I really don't think it's very good. I don't think the recording is very good, but the raw emotion of it makes up for everything else. I mean, it's just like, Mm. you just get run over by their sound and the emotion that comes across. But moving on, um, sort of that idea of just sort of, raw emotion carrying over tried this first song that i selected is planet rock by africa bombada mm. to me it feels like it's a house party you can hear the Newmark mixer sound where like some of the sounds that they're sampling have a little bit of a sort of compressed sort of digitalized sound to them and things like that and basically cribbing craft work you know yeah it's a fun song it's just awesome there's something about the way it sounds let's listen to it Check the show notes, because the song comes here. I'm just grinning from ear to ear. So we've got songs on this playlist that are somber or peaceful in their nature. And then we've got songs that are very uplifting in their nature. And, And this is one of the most uplifting records I know of. It's, as you said, an instant party. An instant party in a box. It's uh, funny how this came out in 1982 and there are so many um, sounds on there that just kind of became cultural memes. Among the record-making crowd of the early 1980s, there's those synthesized horn stabs, the reek sound. I know Prince used that an awful lot, but so did everybody else. And then there's the the um, electronic go-go bells. They, were, they weren't real go-go bells, but they were used a lot in the early 80s. It just was a staple of dance music. The tink, 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 tink. Right. Right. Yeah, that was a staple of dance music hits in the early 80s. It's interesting how record makers will do quite naturally an imitation of what's popular. Whatever is ruling the charts is going to cause, for good reason, other record makers to say, yeah, let's get more of that. And they're going to just saturate the marketplace until people are sick of it and you don't hear it anymore. This record, Planet Rock, was one of those records that saturated the marketplace and spawned so many imitators. In the book, I'm using it as an example of the Roland, the TR-808 kick drum. That kick drum has had one of the longest reigns of any timbre in record making. It's still on the charts today. And I may say that happy music doesn't get enough credit. So years ago, Sam Rayburn of the U.S. House of Representatives, I think, said, uh, any donkey can kick down a barn, but it takes a man to build one. And it's something that songwriters need to be reminded of. So beginning songwriters will tend to write sad or introspective songs. They want to get serious. They want to get the listener's attention by saying, now I'm going to share something that's intimate and private with you. Okay, that's fine. There's a place for that. But bringing someone down, bringing their mood down is much easier to do and lifting someone up, getting them to feel genuinely happy and cheerful. So these songs that tend to ride the top of the pop charts tend to be party-in-a-box kind of, of records, and it's harder to do than you might think. Comedy is much, much harder than tragedy. You have to add something to someone's emotional state for comedy. For tragedy, all you have to do is tear it down. But going back to kind of what we, what you were saying about the shags, I mean, it's 
to me, I think what people like about it is sort of just the raw joy. <laughs> right. Pure sincerity, like looking at a child's drawing. You'll put it up at, on the refrigerator and and you love it. You genuinely love it. I would be remiss to not uh, call out one of my favorite elements of this song when there is at least a partial verse. <laughs> There's a brief moment where he is doing almost like a scat sort of a zizu 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 zizu. That's my favorite part because it's so ridiculous. It reminds me very much of sort of like, you know, people like to poke fun at Anthony Kiedis, as do I, I mean, from the Red Hat Chili Peppers and sort of his nonsensical lyrics that he does sometimes where you can tell he just couldn't think of anything. So he's just sort of making it up as going along. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, the, the rappers were known as Soul Sonic Force. Our human voice is the most important audio signal that we human beings hear and we have the option of sharing information in words with people or just sharing what we're feeling which means you could just get rid of words altogether and use your voice to communicate rhythm or to communicate an emotion when the pitch changes in your voice or letting people know if you're happy or sad so sometimes music performers will do that uh, bono is from U2 is famous for just scatting over the band when he's trying to figure out what syllables, what words might work here. So he doesn't necessarily have a lyrical idea. He knows what sounds he wants to impart. And uh, from that, he'll, he'll draw lyrics. Sometimes it's so good that you don't need to replace it. You know, it's, it, yeah, like the, the percussive noises you make with your mouth are just fine. It's music enough. Fasha. I think it works in this case. Uh, with Anthony Kiedis, maybe not so much, but that's for each listener to decide. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's like, maybe finish up the lyrics, dude. But... <laughs> But anyway, um, moving on, the next song, the next song is a little bit of a sad song. At least when I first heard it as a, as a child, it scared the crap out of me. Mm. And that, and it's not a song I think people normally, or at least they don't associate Frank Sinatra with that. They think of like, you know, big bands and like fun sort of like 40s, 50s pop hits before rock and roll and very sentimental. And the song is very sentimental, but it was a very good year in this particular version compositionally and how it's arranged and everything is just it tells so much more than just what the lyrics are for me what i really like is the introduction check the show notes because the song comes here all right so the reason why i love that introduction so much is because he's like talking about his birthday but a few months ago <laughs> <laughs> which is true almost anybody, yet the audience eats it up. Who gives a crap? Yeah, sure, happy birthday, dude. But that was like, you know, three months ago or whatever it was, <laughs> like, I had a birthday too. But the audience loves him so much that they are just like, yay, Frank, uh, sing us the song. And then he sings him this. <laughs> it starts out very sort of like, hey, young, happy, blah, blah, blah. And then it gets into like, oh, crap, I'm old. And Things are things are changing. <laughs> mm. uh, it's like I, I think that's one thing that I like about live recording so much is that there's a whole element that's going on. Like for me, one of my favorite live albums is Live at Peps by Yusuf Latif, and it's certainly not his best work or anything like that. But you can hear over the course of the 40-minute album or however long it is, it's at a sort of dinner club. The, the people listening to it and watching it are sort of disinterested. You can hear clanking of, of plates, but by the end of it, you don't hear any of that. It's just, just the band doing their thing. Mm. But it was a very good year, just the song itself. I don't know who, I, I want to say Nelson Riddle, but I could be wrong. Uh, maybe you know who who's behind the arrangement in this, but just sort of the, mm. to think that this is a pop song when it originally came out, and it's really complicated. I mean, there's a lot going on musically uh, with the strings and the horns and all that. Mm. Well, I had just finished 
reading James Kaplan's two-volume biography of Frank Sinatra. Now, Frank Sinatra is considered by musicians to be just about perfect when it comes to being a vocalist. Uh, many will regard him <clears throat> as the greatest singer America has ever produced. So what made him so great? We talk about in the recording studio, who's carrying the music? Who's the most musical? This man, when he got on a microphone, was sublime in his capacity to express music, melody, and emotion, feeling, rhythm with his voice. Just sublime. Ella Fitzgerald was technically, they say, a little bit more perfect. But Frank not only had that technical perfection, Frank had the authenticity of the shags. Frank had that passion. And he didn't come by that necessarily naturally. When he was a young man, he worked really hard, physically, mentally, emotionally, to get to the point where he could deliver every word in a song with feeling, with deep, deep feeling. In the version that's from the sands, I hear him describing being 17, and he sounds like he's 17. He's kind of hurrying a little bit. He's got all this ardor and all this passion. And then when he gets to be 35, he's a man now. He slows down. He's still passionate, but he's not in so much of a hurry. He takes you through that journey of aging, and you can feel it's a little bit poignant when he talks about being at the end of his life. It's so poignant. Frank Sinatra is a tough act to follow because he's musically 10 on a 10 scale. He's as good as it gets. And if you're going to try with any record to follow Frank Sinatra, you're either going to have to reset the playing field entirely or follow with someone who's as good. And it's really hard to find someone who is as good. He was such a superstar, a superstar like we can't even imagine in his day, I read this in Kaplan's biography, young women would line up on the streets of New York in front of the theater where he was going to play. They would scoop up snow that he had walked in because it had its, his footprint in it. Snow, <laughs> just a ridiculous level of superstardom that was way ahead of the Beatles and was unprecedented. America had never seen anything like it before. Frank managed to survive that wave of superstardom, apparently, for all intents and purposes, fade into obscurity a little bit later on, and then come roaring back with a second life, and once again be on top of the public's, in the public's eye. That's rarely, if ever, done. It's an extraordinary accomplishment. I remember as a child, like I, my stepfather was very obsessed with a lot of Frank Sinatra. In particular, this record we listened to a lot. And so I'm very familiar with it. Um, and he used to always talk to me about um, how, and this is kind of what I think you're referring to, is his middle of his career, or what would be seem like the middle of his career, he had throat surgery just because he was had throat, vocal damage and things like that. And his his range actually dropped. And my stepfather was more partial to the stuff after his voice mm -hmm. dropped for, for whatever reason. I'm sure you have some thoughts in terms of explaining why that is, but you know, sort of that sort of more weathered sort of deeper voice, I guess, spoke to him more. Mm. Research shows that human beings evolved to be very, very astutely aware of what's going on with other human beings based on what's happening in their voice. So of all the sounds that we hear, we are experts in assessing the human voice more than any other kind of sound. So when you have an older singer, you're hearing the weight of their personal history their personal lives in their voice. A young person can't give you that tone. They haven't lived long enough to shape their voice, to shape their attitude, to convey the richness of a life. In the book, I talk about, I compare the exact same song, but sung by two singers. It's Hurt, uh, written by Trent Reznor. And Trent Reznor did his own version of Hurt when he was a fairly young man. And he sounds like a young man who is hurting. 
But when Johnny Cash, near the end of his life, as an old man, sang Hurt, it's chilling. It's chilling because the opening line is, I hurt myself today. When a young man says it, you're like, okay, you know, you're going to be okay. Let's just calm down and talk this out. But when an old man says it, there's more weight behind it. So as Frank Sinatra aged, his range became more limited, but the weight, the emotional weight behind his, his voice got greater. You better get ready to fight because I have a lot of thoughts on the song Hurt. I know we're not listening to that, but for me, I'm not necessarily a big, huge Trent Reznor slash Nine Inch Nails fan, but mm -hmm. I mean, while I enjoy some of their music, mm. my personal take is I actually like Trent Reznor's version more. I know that Trent Reznor personally feels feels that Johnny Cash owned that song and it became his song, and I think a lot of people agree with that. But for me, I feel like Trent Reznor's version, it just feels more complete to me. Mm. Johnny Cash, it's more like, to me, it feels more one note, like, oh, crap, I'm an old guy at the end of my life, and I've I've done some crap, and, um, you know, here goes this song. And I think it's a great song, don't get me wrong. I think his version is amazing, but I still prefer the Trent Reznor version. Mm, it's interesting just to consider the two different timbres, and I used it as an example in the book in the chapter on timbre to say uh, when the lyrics are exactly the same, the melody is exactly the same. The chord changes are the same. Just compare the difference in the feeling you get from the different kinds of voices that you hear. And actually, Rudy, you're making my point for me. The reason the book is called This Is What It Sounds Like is because for each one of us, the exact same signal is going to prompt a different sort of response because it's going to prompt different associations. It, it, that's why no one should ever be a music snob or a music wallflower. Your taste is valid. Whatever you like is just an indication that this particular record is doing something for you personally that it might not do for someone else. Well, I'm going to fight you on that. I'm a music snob and I'm proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> It's fun to be one. Yeah. I, I mean, I think everybody's taste in music is great and justified as long as it matches mine. <laughs> anyway, we just were talking about, we were just talking about Frank Sinatra and what a great voice his is technically. The next song I want to listen to is by Nina Simone, who I think has a great voice too, but... If you're judging it sort of by sort of objective technical standards, her voice is really not that great. I mean, she has a, a great sense of melody. Her piano playing is exceptional. Her songwriting is exceptional. But I think she sort of defies a lot of the rules of what a quote-unquote good voice is. She doesn't do anything really flashy or anything like that. She's, her voice doesn't even sound, I think, it's not necessarily that even pleasing in and of itself, but the way, but the way she uses it. Mm. Uh, Nina is for me, one of those goddesses, you know, she started as piano player or I said, you know, you may not know, but uh, she started as a classically trained pianist. And when she was young, there weren't opportunities for young female black classically trained pianists in order to have a musical career. She needed to get on the microphone and sing and write as well. So she became the Nina Simone that we all know, kind of by being put through a certain filter that she didn't choose. Nonetheless, she's a great example of someone who is singing from a, a place of, a unique place, a, a, a perspective on life that is deep and rich. And we can hear that in her voice. We hear sorrow and joy and we hear pain and we hear amusement. You hear a lot of things in Nina Simone's voice because she's learned how to use the, the instrument of her voice the same way that she would use piano. Um, she is held up as the standard for many, many singers, even though, as you said, she's not Shaka Khan, she's not Adele, but she's a great communicator vocally, a great, great musician. She herself was not the target audience for her own music, I guess you could say. And maybe it mm -hmm. came to be that in time, but at least initially, she was just doing it because I need to make some money. True. I would say the one thing that I think is really interesting about this song is, I mean, a lot of people know Nina Simone mm -hmm. as being sort of this great piano player, but there's no piano in this song. I just think, I mean, when I hear it, 
I imagine mm -hmm. her sort of walking through the crowd and almost like holding class and like explaining. To me, it's almost like shaming the tone of her voice, but then mm -hmm. at the at the same time, um, it's it's. I mean, there's like at one point where she's she's just sort of vamping on the word beautiful, like beautiful. Mm -hmm. To me, that kind of says that emotions are way more complex than they may seem on the surface, even though like. Basically, whoever she's talking to sounds like they're a pariah in many ways and a, hip and a hypocrite, but yeah. she still loves them um, or, or ha has some sort of love for them. I don't know who I don't know who it's about, but I wouldn't want to be that person. Yeah. <laughs> a great artist can do that to you. A great artist can get you to just like a great art actor can get you to see the depth, the weight, the the nuances, the hidden facets the hidden experiences that contributed to that particular performance you can see that with nina because she was so so pure and authentic in the way that the shags are although in nina's case with a ton of of actual virtuoso technique she's so immediate that you can kind of get when you're listening to her you could get the feelings that she's projecting like she's talking to a lecherous man and she's saying she's not going to take it anymore check the show notes because the song comes here there's just something about this song when i first heard it it was not the nina simone i expected but it was the nina simone that i needed to i guess mm. paraphrase batman but um mm -hmm. i just think there's something amazing about this song i mean it's it's each of the instrument, each of the layers that are going on here are actually fairly simple, but when all the layers come together, it's pretty amazing. By the time it gets to that sort of like very funky drum beat that comes in about yeah. halfway through, it's like, it's almost a completely different song than what it began as, or it's just the emotion is that much more intense. Yeah. It's just so like, to me, there's just something so magical about that song. Yeah, uh, it's a challenge for an artist to get on the microphone and essentially be given the job of handling all the melody in a record. Usually you've got a piano, a guitar, or somebody there who's playing the chord changes and who uh, is establishing a tonal center. This is just a rhythm record. It's just rhythm. And so she has to get up there on that mic and handle both lyrics and melody and tell us an emotional story, take us on a journey with, with her voice because the, the rest of the instruments are merely laying a rhythmic foundation. I mean, they're, they're adding a lot of attitude too, but there's only so much they can do. So she's taking on this big musical challenge and, she's mastering it of course yeah i mean to me it just feels very much like all right guys class is in session you think you know what you're doing hold my beer <laughs> that's a good way of putting it yeah I mean, I, I mean this isn't really a downer song it's more just sort of like it's like i'm just gonna put you in your place the nina simone song that is so moving on here's a song that's a little bit i guess more straightforward of a downer song that would be teardrop by jose gonzalez mm. I was really happy when I saw that Jose Gonzalez was mentioned in your book. I mean, I know he has some some popularity, especially internationally, but for, he's not maybe as popular as he could be in the United States anyway. And to me, there's a lot, of, there's a very strong personal connection just because I think I emailed you about this is that, you know, after my first series of surgeries and dealing with chemo and radiation, all that, like, I had a lot of auditory sensitivities and I really couldn't listen to much. Um, and I love, I've always loved listening to music, like just for all the reasons people do. Um, and I couldn't, there was very little I could listen to. I mean, there's Bill Evans, Peace Peace, which I listened to up about a bazillion times, pretty much every day. Mm. All of Jose Gonzalez's uh, catalog, um, which spans from like mid 2000s to most recently, he just had a record come out. So most of his songs are just his voice and acoustic guitar. And then like a few other elements he might overdub, like a second acoustic guitar part. And it's just, mm. I've always been a sucker for layer stuff. And just his mood, mood is very sort of, mm. I just, it speaks to me. Um, I have a lot more to say, but I want to kind of get your thoughts on Jose Gonzalez and how he came to be involved in your book. Mm. 
He's a very, very effective communicator. Someone who doesn't have a broad vocal range. And when he sings, you don't get the sense that he's jumping through any hoops to be a great singer. He's a natural communicator, as we would say in the music business, when someone is a natural singer, it means their singing voice sounds an awful lot to you, like they're just speaking to you. If you notice Jose Gonzalez's phrasing, it'll sometimes be rushed, it'll sometimes be ended abruptly. He's not trying to give you the best vocal performance that you've ever heard in your life. He wouldn't appear on or do very well on American Idol or The Voice or any of those singing competitions. It's good to be reminded that singing doesn't necessarily mean having a three octave range and getting a hernia when you go up to those high notes and doesn't necessarily mean singing your brains out or singing your lungs out. Sometimes singing is just communicating for you, for me, for many, many others. Jose Gonzalez is a perfect communicator. Uh, I loved his version of Teardrop. The melody of this song is so beautiful and Massive Attack who did it originally, chose to make it kind of an electronic, a 90s era electronic record. And we hear Elizabeth Fraser's voice, which is delicate, singing this lovely little melody. Jose stripped it down, just acoustic guitar and voice, and that lets us appreciate that melody even more. Uh, I love his approach to it, very natural and, and real sounding, very honest. It, it zings my heartstrings when I hear that record. It, it goes right to my heart because I'm not listening for the effort that went into it. It just sounds so natural. It's interesting you, you mentioned that it's a cover because I actually hmm. forgot that. I didn't actually even realize that, which I think speaks to volumes to his version. He does. There's another song like that that Jose Gonzalez does, which is This Is How We Walk in the Moon, mm. which was done by Arthur, can't remember his last name. But anyway, um, I'll put it in the show notes. But it's the same thing where it's essentially the same song, but it's not really. Mm. To me, like, I think his way of approaching music is so interesting. Like, he himself, he is of, <clears throat> he is of Swedish and Mexican heritage. Hmm. And I think that very much informs his musical style. Like I know personally, just because I know way too much about him, hmm. is is that he's like a huge flamenco guitar fan. And so you, oh wow, I mean you can kind of hear it in the way he plays the guitar, but he's not really like a highly technical, super fancy, flashy sort of guitar player. I mean he takes very simple parts and just plays the crap out of them. I mean hmm. I think this song "Teardrop" is a great example where it starts with just his voice and acoustic guitar and then just slowly there's layers and um mm. i mean it almost feels like he's in the room with you playing yes playing for you trying to soothe you in some way and then the walls get blown away the roof the ceiling comes gets blown away and you're kind of transported someplace else like that's what his music does to me anyway i'm sorry i'm about to cry but <laughs> For those of you who don't know, I've mentioned it certainly enough on this podcast about the brain cancer thing, but um, after surgeries and chemo and all that, like, I was in a pretty bad place, both emotionally and physically. Jose, sorry, mm. his music, Jose, Jose Gonzalez's music just did a lot for me. It really, it's just, it got me out of bed. It, it, it was all I could listen to just because I was so sensitive to different sounds. And there's something so emotional about his music that, you know, the, the line, it's a different song, Save the Day, but, you know, sort of poke the body, see if it still moves. Um, you got to yeah. do what you got to do to save the day or whatever. But that, whatever the lyrics are, I know that I messed mm -hmm. it up, but mm -hmm. that was a mantra that I repeated in my head. And a lot of, a lot of his, uh, the way he sings songs, it's almost like they are, they are like mantras or prayers or meditations, uh, just in their approach. But, right. um, so he means a lot to me. Um, my wife even reached out to, to him and his manager and they sent me an autographed copy of this, this particular record. So I was very happy to see teardrop in the book. Check the show notes. Cause the song comes here.
Wow. Yeah, that record. <laughs> it, 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 it's interesting that human beings may opt to put on a record that matches their emotion or that changes their emotion. And uh, we do this all the time when we're selecting a record to listen to. So it's telling that when we are in a low place where we're really feeling like, I don't think I can go on, what would you choose? Would you choose a record that matches your feeling? If so, it helps you to know you're not alone. There's others who feel like this. Or maybe you choose to listen to a record that has a completely different mood and helps you see a different horizon. All of us are different. All of us have different needs. It's very moving to hear someone describe a record that got them out of a very low and dark place. For record makers, if you can make a record that does that for someone, your job is done. <laughs> that's, that's as good as it gets. Yeah, I was, it kind of answered my question. I was going to ask is just like, why do some people listen to sort of sad music to kind of cheer their mood up? I mean, his music is not, I wouldn't say his party music. It's not certainly not like Africa Bombada, but it's, it's very uplifting and, and inspiring and motivational for me. So I'm just kind of curious if you have any more thoughts on just sort of that. Mm. So it illustrates the point, I think, that all of us, when we're choosing to listen to a record at any given time, are seeking a certain kind of reward. We need music to be functional for us. It needs to do something for us. What the elements are on any given record that cause it to do that for you going to be different. Each one of us is a unique listener. I'm just happy that music can do that for people at all. It's a beautiful thing. This record builds, as the Massive Attack version does too, it builds in the same way that R&B does. R&B has a different dynamic than most rock music. So an R&B, like with the Nina Simone track, they attempt to get you to feel something by slowly, slowly, slowly progressing up that hill and just getting into a groove and staying in that spot so that at first, yeah, it feels good. And after four minutes, it feels great. That's R&B. Rock music is following a different tradition. It is verse and then the chorus gets really big and then it drops down to the verse and then the chorus gets big again and then it goes to someplace different for the bridge and then it comes back with the big chorus out. Rock music tends to be more dynamic. People tend to have their preferences. Well, we were just talking about how, like, how music can impact you, express different emotions. You might want to listen to a sad song. When you're sad to feel better, you might want to feel listen to a happy song to feel better. And then there's this next song, Lust for Life by Iggy Pop, which is kind of somewhere in between. It's a sort of happy, upbeat, peppy song that is discussing some heavy things, but kind of celebrating, conquering those things, I think. I mean, uh, for me, when I first heard this song, I, I knew Iggy Pop primarily from the Stooges and, you know, sort of a, a record that I fell in love with at first listen is Funhouse by the Stooges. Like to me, it's just like, it's a perfect record. Like mm. I can only listen to it once at a time and then I can't listen to it again for a few days just because mm -hmm. the whole record from start to finish just to me just takes me places it has everything I want. So then there's that, which is sort of, sort of a uh, sort of dark, heavy, sort of brooding sort of record to Lust for Life. Uh, which is not that at all. I mean, it has this very sort of very boomy and peppy sort of um, drum part with really punchy snare and very strong uh, bass drums, almost like there's like slap back or whatever it's on the, on the bass drum and all the drums entirely. It's just like that drum beat is just so all-encompassing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the music, the music itself is very simple. <laughs> it's polar opposite to the Stooges, but... It's just very happy and uplifting and celebratory of what he's been through and who he is now. I don't know if you have any thoughts on Lust for Life. Uh, Lust for Life broke the mold, certainly for a lot of punk records, because it featured a drum groove that is a little bit syncopated. And uh, for those who may not be familiar, syncopation puts emphasis on the moments that happen in between the beats. So rock music will typically go 
and you can accent either the one or the three. So or the other way around. Anyway, when you're on the floor in the mosh pit with a punk or rock band, you see people move, they're typically going to be bouncing up and down, maybe going straight up and down, which is how the, the groove makes you feel. Iggy Pop blew a lot of minds when he came out with Lust for Life because the rhythm on this record was not that straight up and down movement. It's a side-to-side -side syncopated movement. It's a really cool groove, but not one that you associate with the Stooges or one that you associate with any punk artist whatsoever. It's just not done. I remember when that record came out, my friends and I thinking, damn, Iggy Pop totally sold out. But he didn't. <laughs> what he did was sell records. He had a huge hit with that record. And it's become a classic. He combined the, so certain punk elements in the lyrics and the vocal attitude with uh, a, a groovy kind of rhythm section. The juxtaposition of those two elements made the record a hit. Uh, one thing I think is really interesting is that typically, at least in rock music, like I think people are, were used to hearing sort of higher register voices like Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin or somebody like that. Mm -hmm. And here's Iggy Pop who has this sort of lower register voice and um, he has a new sound, a new feel. It's almost like the song is so triumphant. It's almost like it's announcing the beginning of a new era. But um, I'm going to play a little bit of the song first, and then we can, we can talk about that a little bit and move on. Check the show notes, because the song comes here. I don't know. I think the big undersung, the unsung hero in that song is the bass. In a lot of ways, there's something about that, mm. about that bass that is like, I mean, the drums are so front and center, and there's Iggy's voice, but... The bass is doing a lot in that song, just with its tones, slightly distorted, but clean, very crispy and crunchy sort of sound, uh, uh, a sort of crunchy bass sound. Like Right. Ba bass is the most underappreciated instrument on a record. And, and it's, for record makers, it's the instrument that can make or break you. You know, bass has, uh, has an interesting role. It can either just play what the drums are playing and just be a partner to the drums or some bass players want to be up there with the guitars and the melodies and they play the melodies but the great bass players know just how much rhythm to put in their playing and how much harmony and counter melody to put in their playing uh, the great bass players can can make your record richer than it would normally be than an than a mediocre bass player would would give you so yeah, I agree with you. Bass is great on this record. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at guys like uh, John Entwistle or even uh, Getty Lee, it's like their bass playing is not just playing 16th notes. I like that sometimes, but a good bass player can add a whole new dimension to a band. Like, especially in the case of The Who with John Entwistle, where he's almost the lead guitarist of the group, and Pete Townsend was just sort of holding down the rhythm. One song on this list that really blew my mind, I think it's actually one of the greatest songs ever written, and I can't believe, and I'm totally jealous that you were in the room at the time, that's uh, When Doves Cry by Prince. I saw the video before I heard the song, and I was just like, what the hell is this? And then you hear it, and you get to uh, just the audio only, and you really focus. I know the video version was I think, slightly shorter than the one that's on the album, but it's... Uh, it's just sort of like, I don't know, this song breaks every single rule, but follows every single rule at the same time. And I just can't believe that you were in the room when this was done. Just tell me about When Doves Cry. <laughs> well, I have to start with a correction. So I was at home in Minneapolis. Prince flew out to Los Angeles to do some post-production on the movie Purple Rain. And while he was out there, he booked some time at Sunset Sound. So I followed shortly on, a, on an airplane a day or so later. But I unfortunately was not in the control room when, when Dove's Cry was born. I did work on it afterward breaking my heart totally <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know it's it broke my heart too but let me tell you let me relay the story from peggy mccreary who was a staff engineer at sunset sound and was there so when prince first wrote the song and got the inspiration to record it 
he was thinking along the lines of Purple Rain, and he was thinking that this was going to be kind of a big rock power ballad. I have a version of it, which I'm, I'm sworn to secrecy here, but I do have a version of the song when it was originally born into this world, and it had heavy distorted guitar, heavy, heavy, heavy all the way throughout, which is almost impossible to imagine. And it had heavy bass and heavy drums, and he's singing, this is what it sounds like when doves cry. <laughs> now, Prince was smart enough to recognize that's not at all what it sounds like when doves cry, that these big heavy timbres were just, it's too much too much so he stripped all of that back and he started or restarted with just the basic drum beat and the melody he came up with a new lead line that dun 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 that is light and percussive and almost delicate and he began layering more delicate timbres heavy 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 with the rhythm and then let his voice do most of the talking. There was bass on, on this new version, but because it was such a rhythm-heavy record, and like we heard earlier with Nina Simone, because his vocal was handling so much of the melody, he realized, you know, I can mute the bass, and I'm not losing anything here. Drums have got the rhythm. I've got the melody. Let's go ahead and just mute the bass. So he did, and that version is the version that you know on the, on the Purple Rain album. Yeah, I mean, the keyboards happen, ha handle a lot of the bass in this song, I, th I think, anyway. But yeah, it's just like, how many different styles are in this song? It's like, I hear elements of classical, of rock, of R&B, of pop. Like, it's pretty much just got everything. Um, and I'm just going to play a little snippet of it. I just have to point out the beginning. Like, I always, every time I hear this song, I think of the... I remember seeing an interview with Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top and him meeting Prince, who I didn't know was actually a huge ZZ Top fan. Uh, I think it's something that people didn't realize his sort of love for a lot of sort of classic rock sort of ba bands. But, but And then Billy Gibbons asking him about When Doves Cry and being like, what's going on with that beginning there? It's interesting. But it's awesome, but it's different. So anyway, with that, let's listen to that and then we'll talk a little bit more about the song. Mm-hmm. Check the show notes because the song comes here. Like seriously, <laughs> he's just going for it. He's just he's doing his vocals are even like they're almost goth-like. I mean the way he's singing the, the animals start curious poses. All that like it's it's awesome. And like I just think lyrically there's so much going on in this song. I think I think for me, this was one of the first songs where I really paid attention to the lyrics. Like I was familiar with, with lyrics, but just oh. I mean, they're very philosophical indeed. It's like uh you know, just sort of this uh idea of maybe I'm just like my mother, maybe I'm just like my father. Why yes. do we scream at each other? This is what it sounds like when doves cry. I don't know what it sounds like when doves cry, but it's yeah, it makes you think for sure. Yeah, it's. Uh, I've said many times that Prince was a very, very, very honest lyricist. When he writes, he's telling you the truth. Uh, he didn't do a lot of interviews, but in a way, he didn't really need to because in his lyrics, you can listen to those lyrics, and I, I don't think he lied when he wrote lyrics and I don't think he fronted or pretended um as you may know from the movie Purple Rain he he depicts conflicts with his mother and father those were real life conflicts his mother was perpetually dissatisfied with his father his father was a jazz musician and mother and father divorced and when he writes the line, uh, maybe you're just like my mother, she's never satisfied. Maybe I'm just like my father, too bold. Dad had a temper. So he's writing about his real life there. And uh, the line, this is what it sounds like when doves cry, is him acknowledging that the person he's just fought with, the person he, he, he just hurt, is really basically as gentle as a dove. And um, he's sorry. He's sorry for having hurt this person. So the elements that are on the record, there is, of course, that ferocious growling guitar. And then there, there's his voice at the beginning, the, the heavy distorted element because his emotions that he's expressing are heavy and distorted. But 
That doesn't mean the whole record needs to be heavy and distorted. There's a balance of light and dark there that worked out well for him. This was his first number one single. You mentioned the lyrics, and I'll tell you a funny story. So we were on the Purple Rain tour, and we had a kid named Matt Larson, and he was a kid. He was 18 years old, right out of high school when he joined us. He was an audio technician. And we're on the tour bus after the show. We're on our way to the next gig, and Matt says, Wow, it was so great of Prince to write that song about Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye had just passed away. We said, there's no song about Marvin Gaye. Yeah, yeah, When Doves Cry. And we said, no, When Doves Cry doesn't have anything to do with Marvin Gaye. He goes, yeah, it does. It's in the lyrics. Dig, if you will, the picture of you and Marvin Gaye and the kids. (laughs) Which was really, really funny. It's The line is, you and I engaged in a kiss. He thought it was you and Marvin Gaye and the kids. (laughs) It was funny. (laughs) <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> uh, I, I could go on you're the sort of person I could talk to uh, for a long long time oh thank you in terms of the book I have to ask this the line in One Dove's Cry uh, this is what it sounds like when doves cry the name of the book this is what it sounds like any connection? <laughs> yeah, we uh, had such a hard time coming up with a title early in the process. And I mentioned Tommy Jordan earlier. He's um, just my oldest and dearest friend. We've made a lot of records together. And Tommy and I were visiting his dad at Princeton. And, um, you know, at the table, just trying to come up with what could we call this book? Tommy went to the men's room and he came back out and he said, I've got it. This is what it sounds like. And it was so perfect. There was never any other choice after that. Uh, Tommy is uh, one of those hyper creatives uh, that I spoke about with you before. Uh, Just a fountain, a gushing fountain of creative ideas. So give him the opportunity to come up with a title for your book and Tommy will come up with that title. And he did. Just let him go to the bathroom first. Just let him go to the men's room. He'll come back out with the solution to your problem. Thanks for listening. New episodes of the R3 podcast most Sundays. See the episode description for notes and where to find more online.